be seated. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, a portion of Revelation uh, that you are probably somewhat familiar with, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I've been kind of looking at the passages and how they relate to our schedule and it looks like we'll get the demons coming out to torment the earth right about Christmas. So that's going to work out great for us this year. Perfect timing. Um, but I do want to welcome all of you this morning. Don't forget Operation Christmas Child. Uh, many of you took boxes. Uh, we need them back. And uh, you've got a limited window here. Um, so make sure, if you can, get them back to us this week. Um, if you still like to participate, you can go online. The, the process is incredibly simple. Um, you, you, all the stuff is there for you. you go to our website. You can, it'll link you up, and you can do it all online. It might be an easier process for you if you've got a box, or if you still want to come and get a box of your own, uh, let us know up here. We've got plenty available. Uh, we've got a lofty goal, and, and thank you for participating. I uh, also want to welcome Reach Church and uh, the venue service down the hall, and all those joining us online this morning, thank you for being with us. Revelation 6, when we left off in Revelation chapter 5, we left off with heaven worshiping the lamb that was standing as if slain. We saw the holiness of God. We, we saw the worthiness of Christ as he took the seven-sealed book, the book of the completion of God's purposes and plans and history, and Christ says, now. And judgment begins. And so just as we've seen the holiness of God and we've seen the worthiness of Christ, now we see the seriousness of his wrath and justice. As Christ breaks these seals, we will see in the seals kind of an overview of the entirety of the tribulation period. And so as we move chronologically, we'll see seven seals. We get the seventh seal, guess what we're going to see? Seven trumpets. We get the seventh trumpet, and guess what we're going to see? We're going to see seven bowls. They'll move through chronologically, and as they do, the sequence of events gets more rapid and more intense the closer you get to the return of Christ. There's kind of a rhythm to it. So when you see the seals, it's going to be, uh, the best way I know how it would be, be one, two, three, four, five, six. You'll get the seventh, or the seventh seal, and then what? You got the trumpets, it'll go one, two, three, four, five, six, and you get to the bowls, and it goes one, two, three, four, five, six, and Christ comes back. Um, Jesus referred to it as birth pains. I've never had birth pains, but I've seen them, and uh, you know how it works. The pain comes intermittently, but the closer you get to birth, what? The pain is more intense and more rapid. And so it will be with these seals and trumpets and bowls. As we move closer, they'll become more rapid and more intense until you have the return of Christ. So we'll move chronologically, but as we do, if you've been reading through Revelation, you'll also see interludes. So at certain points, as we move chronologically with the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, at certain points, we'll stop and we'll take a deeper look. God will cause us to take a deeper look at certain individuals and people who are players within that tribulation time. So we'll see this next week with 144,000. Uh, later, we'll stop. We'll look at the two witnesses. We'll look at the beast. We'll look at Satan. We'll look at Israel. 
Um, we'll look at the two witnesses. So we'll, we'll stop and we'll take deeper looks at the individuals as we move through. It's kind of like when you teach history. If you teach history, uh, if you're teaching through World War II, you move chronologically, but at certain points along the way, you have to stop and look at certain individuals, right? You've got to look at Eisenhower. You've got to look at Stalin. You've got to look at Hitler. You've got to look at Patton. You've got to take deeper dives into certain individuals. So you take breaks from the chronology. We'll see that as God moves us through this book of Revelation. And let me make this disclaimer as we head into some of the more de- detailed and more difficult portions of Revelation. I've read many scholars, many commentaries, looked at other pastors, and, and quite frankly, I'll tell you this morning, I've not found one person with whom I fully agree on their interpretation of Revelation. And that should scare you a little bit because all of those people are far smarter than me, all right? Uh, So I'm doing the best I can, but I say that to remind us as we go through these things, these are difficult. We kind of look through a glass dimly on some of these these items, but here's what I, just as I've been studying this week, here's what really comforts me about the book of Revelation. Uh, When I was uh, in school, I never was a very good reader, and so when I was assigned a reading assignment or a book to read, I always looked for what kind of books? Picture books. (laughs) Lots of pictures. Um, You know what's good about the book of Revelation? It's a picture book. If you read Revelation, you'll note that the dominant verb in Revelation is not, I heard, although he does say that occasionally. And, and, And there are portions where God dictates to John what to say. We see that in the seven letters to the seven churches. But the dominant verb in Revelation will be, I saw. This is what John saw. And he's not being told to dictate certain words. He's just describing. In fact, if you read these things, as I've told you before, really to understand Revelation, you've got to understand the Old Testament. You've got to understand Matthew 24. All of those things come together in Revelation. You've got to know your Bible to come to Revelation. It culminates. It ties up all the loose ends. But John is describing in the language as best he can what he's seen in front of him. And the beauty of this is in these pictures, every one of these pictures, regardless of your interpretation of of revelation and regardless of whether or not we fully understand everything that's here certainly in these pictures we can appreciate the pictures of God's holiness his sovereignty and how he wraps up all things and fulfill things in his son Jesus Christ and that's what I hope we see in these things as we we walk through this I'm going to give you my interpretation as best I understand it but no matter where you come from Hopefully, we can, as we, we see these pictures, we can, we can uh, fully appreciate God's glory, his holiness, and the worthiness of his son, and how everything culminates in the coming of Christ. So with that in mind, let, let's pray together, and then we'll just work our way through this chapter. Father, I, I thank you so much that you have given us your word Just as it was with Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, you said, he's my friend. And i got to let my friend know what I'm about to do. And I'm grateful that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are your friends. And you've not left us in the dark as to what is to come. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning you would let my words fall by the way. Make your word clear to us. Speak to us and make known to us the clear principles in this text and give us hearts to obey. 
Our heart's desire is not to gain more information, but to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. And Lord, I pray if there's somebody here this morning or watching online that doesn't know you, I pray that you'd speak into their hearts. You'd show them the severity of your wrath that is to come. And you'd show them the means of your salvation, which is Jesus Christ, the lamb who is worthy, the lamb that was slain, the lamb that is standing because he's alive and conquered death. Lord, work now in this time. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me in verse 1 of of chapter 6. It says, Then I saw the lamb broke one of the seven seals. That lamb is the lamb standing as if slain. That is King Jesus, the immortal king with mortal wounds. And he breaks one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. And in verse 2, I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Of all these four horsemen, this one is probably the most controversial. Some, as they look at this first rider on this white horse, they see Christ. And it's easy to see how they would see Christ because who else do we see in Revelation who rides on a white horse? Jesus. Who else do we see in Revelation who wears a crown? Jesus. Who else do we see in Scripture who goes forth conquering? Jesus. But we base our interpretation, or I certainly base my interpretation, on Daniel chapter 9. that lets us in on more detail as to what God is doing here. And you'll remember when we, when we studied Daniel chapter 9, he told us that at the beginning of the tribulation, there'd be somebody come along who would look like Christ, but he's not Christ. And he would bring about a period of great peace. In fact, he would do what no one else on earth has ever been able to do. And that is he will bring peace to the Middle East. He will covenant with Israel. Israel will covenant with a pagan to the extent that he allows them to rebuild the temple and to begin offering sacrifice here. And so uh, being influenced heavily by Daniel chapter 9, I take this to be Antichrist. He looks like Christ, but he's not Christ. He's a counterfeit Christ. And he goes forth conquering by means of peace. In other words, he has a bow, but he has no arrows. It's a bloodless coup. And he's bringing all things under his feet, uh, similar to Hitler prior to World War II in Germany, who was promising peace, but he came to bring war. Here you see Antichrist going forth, and initially in this tribulation period, bringing about Peace, setting himself up to be the Messiah, the Savior that the world wants, but not the one that God sent. And then you see in verse 3 in the second seal, when, I, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men should slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So here it begins with a great period of peace, but just as quickly as peace came, it's interrupted by severe war. Uh, we know this on the basis of, 
of Jesus' words in Matthew 24 and also Daniel chapter 9, that after Antichrist comes bringing peace, he would very quickly go back on his promises and he would bring about a period of war unlike this world has ever known. And in the midst of all that, he would in fact even go into the temple. He would cut off sacrifice. He would set up a statue to himself. He would desecrate the temple, make himself out to be God, a moment that, that Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. And it brings about war. There is war occurring here like never seen before. And then in verse 5, when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. So now you have a black horse, and this horse comes with a rider who's carrying scales. You, you all have that image in your mind of the, the deal with the two baskets on each side, and oftentimes it's the scales of just, uh, justice, but here it's the scales that were used to buy and exchange goods. If you wanted a shekel uh, of wheat, you would put your shekel on one side, and they'd weigh out the wheat on the other. So this is their means by which they exchange goods. And then you heard a voice in verse 6, and I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures. Who was it that we saw in the center of the four living creatures? It's God. And so God here now speaks and says, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. Uh, a quart of wheat, a wheat was uh, a staple food in that day. A quart of wheat would be enough to probably feed you and your family. So that would give you and your family maybe a day or two of food. And then three quarts of barley. Barley is what you would have fed your livestock. It's a staple food. People ate it, but they also fed it to their horses. It's a staple food. These are basic items. And it says both a, a quart of wheat and three quarts of barley are going to cost you a denarius apiece. A denarius was a day's wages. This would be like saying in our day, I'll give you a loaf of bread and a couple of boxes of Quaker oats and you're going to have to give me $1,000. Now, inflation's bad, but we're not there yet. Extreme inflation, the bare necessities of life are going to cost you everything that you have just to get by, just to survive. And it says at the end there, and do not damage the oil and the wine. There's really two interpretations on this. One is that while the poor are incredibly impoverished, the wealthy just get richer. Or it could mean that while the basic items are scarce, there are certain items that are untouched by this severe famine. I tend to believe the latter portion of that, that there's some items that are untouched. But the progression that you see here is this white horse bringing Peace, a period of great peace is then interrupted by a period of great and unparalleled war. Warlike has never been seen before. And in the midst of war, what do they experience? Famine. Isn't that only logical, though? We see this in parts of uh, the world today, in parts of Africa. War-torn countries, as they go through that war, they experience extreme poverty. As crops are destroyed, as supply lines are cut off, as people are killed, you have poverty. And here we see extreme poverty. So peace followed by war, and in the midst of that war, great poverty. Then look on, verse 7, when the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. 
show accompanying uh, a period of war and famine is logically also death. And it says here that Hades was following with him. You know, when, when one of us as believers in Jesus Christ, if we are to die today, where do we go? If a believer in Jesus Christ dies today, uh, you go to be with the Lord. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul said in Philippians, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Uh, there are some who would talk about soul sleep. Let me just let you in on this this morning. That is unbiblical. Biblically speaking, if you die today, you go to be with the Lord if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You'll await your resurrected, glorified body at the rapture. But you will go to be with Christ. On the other hand, if you were to die today and you do not know Christ, you've rejected Christ, you would go to a place the Bible calls Hades. And it's a place of torment where a person awaits their final judgment into the eternal lake of fire. And we see this depicted throughout Scripture, but the place where it's most clearly depicted is in Luke 16 with the rich man and Lazarus. You remember in that story, the rich man is there in Hades, a place of torment, and he calls out to Abraham to have him just dip his finger in some cold water and touch it to his tongue to give him some relief from the agony and the torment that he is experiencing. And so, listen, there are also people out there who will say you die and nothing happens. That's unbiblical as well. If you die today, either you know Christ and you go to be with the Lord, or you don't know Christ and you go to Hades, a place of torment. It's not a frat party. It's a place of extreme torment where a person waits for God's final judgment and then they're cast into the eternal lake of fire. So here you see, you see uh, war and then famine, and then death, and people going to Hades. And then what does it say at the very end of verse 8? Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth, and given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. A quarter of the earth dies. Uh, the earth's population today is approximately 7.3 billion people. A quarter of the earth would be 1.8 billion people. 1.8 billion people die. Uh, to put that in perspective, uh, the population of our country is 329 million. It would be five times the population of the United States dies in the midst of all this. You have widespread death, death by means of war, death by means of extreme famine, and Hades following with it. And then we look down the fifth seal in verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So here we see... Uh, martyrs, and they die because of their testimony and because of their faithfulness to the word of God. So what we see happening here is that in the midst of the tribulation, people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. 
Uh, they're called tribulation saints. They come to know the Lord. They await their resurrected bodies at the second coming of Christ. But you say, how in the world do people come to faith in the midst of the tribulation if the church is raptured out? Well, come back next week and you'll learn. <laughs> but, but you know there's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists that the Jewish nation will finally look upon him whom they have pierced. They will trust in their Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They will come to know Jesus, and they will proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And multitudes of people will come to faith in Christ. Gentiles will come to faith in Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture of God's patience and his grace that even in the midst of him pouring out his wrath, simultaneously he continues to draw and save men and women unto himself and faith in his son Jesus. And notice where they're at. They're under the altar, but they are in glory. They are with Christ. And in verse 10, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're saying, how long? And they, they, they describe God as both holy and true. They appeal to God's character and his nature. They're not asking for revenge. They're not saying, God, when are you going to revenge us? When are you going to revenge our death? They're not asking for that. They're asking for God's holiness and his justice to be declared on the earth. Isn't this what we desire today? We cry out, God, how long? When will you bring justice? When will you establish your righteousness here on earth? So they're crying out for God's justice, his righteousness to be established. Probably what John was thinking in his mind as he wrote these words. And in verse 11, what's the response of God? And there was given to each of them a white robe. A picture of his holiness given to them. And it's a reminder to these Tribulation saints to these martyrs, you're mine. And then what else does he say? And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. Until what? Until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So here are these tribulation saints martyred during this period. They're crying out to God, how long? How long will this go on? How long until you establish justice and righteousness? And God says to them, you rest. You rest until what? You rest until I have completed my number of those who will come to faith in me. This is so good. God has an exact number of people that he will draw into himself and it will not be completed until he says it's done. One of the things that we see in this is that God is in complete control, even in the midst of this tribulation period, pursuing his promises and accomplishing his will and drawing out a people unto himself. And then look in verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. Uh, the sun goes dark. Uh, we see other places where the sun goes dark, don't we? In in Egypt, in Exodus, the sun went dark as a picture of God's judgment on the Egyptians. When else does the sun go dark? Calvary, doesn't it? At noon. At noon, in the middle of the day, there's not, a, it's not an eclipse. On that day, 
the sun goes dark is a picture of God's judgment upon who? Upon Christ. As he drinks the full cup of God's wrath for whose sin? For ours. And God, in in a symbolic picture of him turning his face away, the sun goes dark. And right here, the sun goes dark as a picture of God's judgment and wrath being poured out on a world that has rejected him. And then it was to say, and and the whole moon became like blood. It goes dark. And in verse 13, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. These are the foundational elements of the earth. You've got the sun and the moon and the stars. These are those things that we know every day. That sun's going to come up. We, we set our clocks by these things. These are foundational elements of the earth. And we enjoy the common grace of God that comes through these things. That every day the sun comes up and the sun goes down. The rains fall. The crops produce. God gives us air to breathe to sustain our life. And man as a whole, as a large part, never acknowledges God. Never gives thanks for his daily provision and his common grace. And here at the end, guess what God does? He takes it all down. What a powerful picture of his judgment. And then what do you see in verse 14? The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Meaning Everest comes down. Hawaii is moved. And in verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Everybody. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. You cannot escape God's judgment. And this world of people that has rejected God, they've, they've kind of casually in their lives thought they were hiding from God. All of a sudden, in this moment, as God shows up, they desire to hide themselves from God himself. And what do they say in verse 16? And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. I believe what happens here is as the sky splits apart, the world gets a glimpse of the glory of God. They get a glimpse of the Lamb standing as if slain. And so, you know, we talked about in Romans 1 that God places a knowledge of himself in every one of us. And what do we do? In our sin, we suppress it, don't we? Man in his sin suppresses, I don't want God. In this moment, there's no way to suppress it. God shows up. They confronted with his glory. And you know what they become? They become orthodox in their beliefs. Now they acknowledge that he's God. Now they acknowledge that the lamb is there. But guess what? It's too late. In this moment, it's too late. And the severity of God's wrath is so strong that they say we would rather the mountains fall on us at this moment. What a powerful picture. And then there in that that last verse, verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? It's a haunting question. Who is able to stand? The wrath of God. 
the holiness of God. Who is able to stand? As we read this passage, as we see chapter 6, if there's anything that becomes evident, it's that the Bible has a pretty pessimistic view of this earth and this world. We are not going to establish heaven on earth. This progressive idea that if, if we just had a little more knowledge, if we could change their education, if we could somehow make a few more advances in science and technology, then maybe somehow we'd have this great utopia. And the message of Revelation is man will never establish utopia on earth. The progression of this world is on a downward spiral of man's sin and a degradation that gets so low that God pours out his judgment in finality upon this earth. This whole deal is coming down. And the question is, when that day comes, who will stand? When the day of God's wrath comes, who will stand? And there's only one. And it's the person who has placed their faith in the perfect Lamb of God who died on the cross for their sins and provided a way of escape and a way of salvation by faith in him who did all the work and his blood covers their lives and through faith in him their sins are forgiven and only through faith in him can they stand in God's presence. Listen, if there's a message of scripture from beginning to all the way to Revelation, it's man and his sin can't come into the presence of a holy God. Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do? He put some cherubim there with some flaming swords and says you can't go back, you can't enter into God's presence. Anybody in the Old Testament that tried to enter into God's presence, what happened to them? There was one king who thought he was really good. He says, I'm going to go into the temple and I'm going to offer sacrifice and burn incense. The priest said, don't go. Guess what he did? He went in there and he offered incense and God struck him with leprosy and he died a leper. You remember David is transporting the ark of God and he's got a buddy over there and the ark starts to fall and what does he do? He puts his hand up to stop it and what does God do? God kills him on the spot. In the, in the temple, they had the Holy of Holies, and they put up a large veil, and only one guy got to go in once a year, and they tied a rope around his leg in case he died in there, because you don't go in the presence of God. We're not going in to get him. We'll just yank him out. The message of God is you don't stand in my presence apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You know, in the, in the temple, there was the ark of God, and contained in the ark of God was the law of God, the Ten Commandments, which gave constant testimony to God of the sinfulness of man. It was constantly testifying that man is sinful. You have broken my law. And so guess what? When the priest went in once a year, you know what he did? He took the blood of an unblemished lamb and he sprinkled the blood on the ark. It was called the mercy seat. He'd sprinkle the blood of that unblemished lamb on the ark so that now symbolically as God looked down upon his broken law, he would see in its place the blood of that lamb. Do you know what the scripture calls Jesus? He's our mercy seat. Meaning through faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is applied to our account. We're covered with his blood. And now as God looks down upon our lives, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. And you know what the great news is? This is available to you as a free gift through faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning or you're watching online and God is speaking into your heart today, there is nothing more precious than hearing the voice of God speak into your heart. 
We've all been there. If you know Christ, you've been there. At one point or another, you've been there where you heard God, whether it was by means of his word or his spirit. You've heard the Holy Spirit of God. And there's no more moment more prominent in my life than when I was sitting in a pew and I heard a preacher preaching this same gospel And I can't remember his exact words, but I can remember what God spoke into my heart. And he let me know, you're a sinner, and your only hope of salvation is Jesus. And I responded that night and trusted in Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. He forgave my sins, past, present, and future. Through faith in Christ, I became a child of God, redeemed and forgiven, set on a new path and a path towards heaven. So that I wouldn't have to know his wrath. And my word to you today, if you're watching online in light of his wrath and knowing what's coming, if he's speaking into your heart and life today, listen to him. Because the fact of the matter is, you may not hear his voice again. And it's not that God ever quits speaking, but as the author of Hebrews says, we can harden our hearts to the message of the gospel that that some of you have heard the gospel so many times. Your heart has become callous to it. And it's not that God has quit speaking. It's that your heart's so callous you can't listen anymore. I'm pleading with you. If God is speaking to your heart today, listen to him. Trust Christ. Because the next time you hear his voice, it might be too late. Now, for those of us that do know Christ, what's the message as we read these things? I've told you this before. Whenever God gives us information about the future, what's the purpose? It's to change our present lives, right? It's not just so we get a lot of information and we say, boy, we know a lot. No, it's so that our lives will be transformed. And the primary reaction for us as believers is that we should be drawn closer and closer to Christ. As I read these things, I don't care where you stand in terms of your interpretation or your timeline of events. If there's one thing you should see in this, it's that as we as believers better stay close to Christ. Because he's our only hope. We draw close to him. We want to live holy lives. When I was in school, if you're like me, I had a teacher who would occasionally step out of the room. And she would say before she left, I'm going to step out, I'm going to go across the hall, I'm going to go down the hall, but I'll be right back. Now, if she said that I'm gone for the day, it would be chaos would ensue. But when she said, I'm going to step out for just a moment, I'll be right back, there might be a little bit of crazy, but there was also the fear of God. Because you knew if she came back and you were messing around, you're going to be in big trouble. Listen to me today. Christ has stepped out of the room. But he is coming back. And I want to ask you this morning, if Christ returned today, would you be proud of your status as a Christian today? Are you walking in faithfulness? Are you being faithful to him and to his word? If he returns today, this question of scripture is, would he find faith? Would he find you walking in faithfulness to his word and his promises? Secondly, it ought to give us urgency with this gospel message. We know these things are coming. This world is a word away from the return of Christ. What about your neighbors? What about your friends? What about your relatives? When was the last time you sat with them knowing that it could be the last time you have an opportunity to talk to them? When was the last time you sat with them and you told them the truth about Jesus Christ and what he's done for you and what he can do for them so that when this moment comes, they wouldn't know his wrath, but they would know his salvation? You know, Thanksgiving's coming up a couple of weeks away. 
You're going to have an opportunity with your family around a table. I just want to challenge you as men, spiritual leaders of your home. If you're having your family into your home around your table, I pray that you would stop before you dive into that turkey and dressing and you would tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done in your heart and your life, how he's changed you. If there's one thing we're grateful for as Christians, it's Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, who gives us our hope of salvation. And no matter if you're the head of the household or not, what a great opportunity as your family gathers around to talk to that sister, brother, aunt, uncle, or the neighbor that you invite from the neighborhood who doesn't have anybody to celebrate Thanksgiving with. Tell them about Christ. We ought to have an urgency to this mission. And then finally, listen, this passage reminds us of the sovereignty of God. In all these things, the one thing that you see, who is opening the seals? is Christ. And then with every writer, you know what it says? And it was granted to them. Do you Listen, Satan does nothing in this world apart from the permission of God. If there's one thing that we, we should see in this, is that God is in control. That God is sovereign. And we rest in the sovereignty of a God who loves us so that no matter what we experience in this world, no matter what situation we're going through, no matter what disease, no matter what your diagnosis might be, no matter how difficult your life may be, no matter the circumstances, God is sovereign, whether it's today or in the tribulation. God is sovereign over every aspect of your life, and he really is working all things together for the good of those who love them, not only here, but there. And we rest just as God spoke to those tribulation saints. Rest until the full number of mine is completed. Do we have a hymn? Oh, we got a hymn. Pastor Bill, he just suddenly appears. There he is. I'm going to read some of these verses. We're going to come in, we're going to join in on the last verse in the chorus, one you're very familiar with. But as we think of the sovereignty of God, today or in the tribulation, he is sovereign. Listen to these words of a hymn you're very familiar with. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay now we're going to stand for this last verse because you can't sing this last verse sitting I'm going to read it to you then we'll sing it when he shall come with trumpet sound oh may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne let's sing it together when he shall come with Oh,
Father, we're so grateful this morning for Jesus Christ, our hope, our righteousness. God, I pray again for anybody that's here this morning. Maybe you're speaking to their heart. They're seeing the depth of their own sin. They're seeing the beauty of Christ as the only means of salvation. God, I pray that they would trust in you. They wouldn't harden their heart. They'd trust in Christ. Know his salvation today. Reborn by faith. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would, we would draw even closer to you, knowing that the days are short. I pray that we would redeem the time, for the days are evil. We would take advantage of every moment. We would count the patience of God as salvation. We would look to our neighbors and our friends and our relatives, and we would be faithful to that gospel message. And God, I pray that we would rest. In a world that seems to have gone mad and crazy, there would be a people of peace and restfulness and a sovereign God who's really good. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.